Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the idea that you don't shoot the messenger dates back evidently to Sophocles. It echoes today as a man named Daniel Hale stands convicted nominally of breaking a law aimed at spies sneaking intel to foreign enemies, but actually with revealing things the U.S. government didn't want known about its drone warfare program the one elite media have often presented as precise in separating bad guys from innocence and therefore superior to other methods of what we are to understand is counterterrorism. Big media have shown little interest in Hale's case. We'll get a backgrounder from researcher and journalist Chip Gibbons, policy director of the group Defending Rights and Dissent. But first, a quick look back at recent press. Republicans' goal with brazen voting bills like the new one in Georgia would be obvious even if they didn't say it out loud. They want to rig future elections more successfully than they have in the past. But as Fair's Julie Holler reports, media's both-sides-ism can give cover to this anti-democratic campaign. In its initial report on Georgia, the New York Times explained that Governor Brian Kemp highlighted his history of, quote, fighting for stronger voter identification laws, which Democrats have denounced as having an outsized impact on communities of color. Mr. Kemp said that protests against the bill were pure politics, close quote. Do stronger voter ID laws have outsized impact on communities of color? For that matter, is stronger a euphemism for more exclusive? The answer is yes, but readers are tipped to see that as a charge of Democrats, not the Times. It's not that they can't use language to convey meaning. The Times writes, quote, Seeking to appease a conservative base that remains incensed about the results of the 2020 election, Republicans have already passed a similar law in Iowa and are moving forward with efforts to restrict voting in states including Arizona, Florida, and Texas, close quote. Well, that's a neat trick to shift the blame. The party is just being responsive to its constituents. Never mind that it was the party that drilled the lie of the stolen election into the heads of their base. As Vox's Zach Beecham pointed out, laws like Georgia's aren't just premised on the lie of election fraud. They serve to ratify that lie. Reporting that obscures that in service to some vague ideas of bipartisanship isn't just wrong, it's dangerous. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Do you care about the U.S. military's increasing use of drone warfare because of the disastrous impact on its targets and or the predictable blowback from the conflicts it foments? Do you care about the U.S. public's ability to know what's being done in our name and have a hope of understanding the repercussions? Do you care about what happens to those people who take it on themselves to reveal things that could not be revealed any other way except by somebody who was inside and knew them to be true? And about the ability of the press to publish those truths so the public can take informed action? If any of that matters to you, you care about the case of Daniel Hale, whether or not you've heard his name. 
Joining us now to fill us in is researcher and journalist Chip Gibbons. He's policy director of the group Defending Rights and Dissent. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Chip Gibbons. Thank you for having me back. Well, we're really, I think, starting from from zero for a lot of folks on this story. Uh, There hasn't been much out there about it. Daniel Hale's case has meaning beyond its particulars, but the particulars matter, too. So who is Hale and what did he do? Sure. And I'm, you know, I would not blame anyone for not having heard of Daniel Hale. There's been almost a complete media blackout on this topic. So Daniel Hale was a U.S. Air Force veteran from, I believe, 2008 to 2013. After he left the U.S. Air Force, he became a a contractor who did some military contracting and intelligence contracting. But most importantly, he became very outspoken about the use of U.S. drone warfare. He appeared at book events with Jeremy Scahill. He appears in the movie National Bird, which is a award-winning film about drone whistleblowers talking both about their own attempts to sort of expose the drone program as well as the own moral injury that they suffered within the military. And in the course of the filming of this movie, National Bird, Daniel Hale's house is raided as part of an FBI search in connection to an Espionage Act investigation. As many of your listeners may know, the Espionage Act was what they used to graphic Daniel Ellsberg under Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden. Espionage Act prosecutions of whistleblowers was extremely rare, not unheard of, until the Obama administration when they really normalized the practice. So this is 2014, and it's not 100% clear in the film what's going on. Obviously, Daniel Hale doesn't give a lot of information other than that he's talked to his lawyer and he thinks he's being targeted for his political activism. And the film comes out in 2016, but in 2015, The Intercept publishes something called the drone papers. But the drone papers were a secret cache of documents about the U.S. drone program given to the intercept by an anonymous source. So now we're one year out from the raid against Mr. Hale. Then in 2019, and you will now know we're five years on, Daniel Hale was indicted under four counts under the Espionage Act and one count of theft of government property. And if you read the indictment, it accuses him of taking classified information about the drone program and giving it to a journalist. That journalist has not been named in any of the court proceedings, but it's very abundantly clear a reference to Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept, who wrote a book called Dirty Wars, The Role of the Battlefield, as well as is the journalist who published the drone papers. Being a whistleblower indicted under the Espionage Act, it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to mount a defense. I've been talking with some of the whistleblowers who have been supporting Daniel Hale, and they all have particularly absurd stories from their trials. Thomas Drake, NSA whistleblower, was telling me about how his attorney couldn't use the word fiber optics during the trial because the existence of fiber optics was considered classified, or they couldn't use the word newspaper, you know, know, these secret words. Oh, my gosh. And the biggest thing is that whistleblowers are gagged from using the word whistleblower, 
gagged from mentioning the First Amendment, but they're also gagged from talking about their story. The first one of these cases was the Daniel Ellsberg case. And Daniel Ellsberg very much wanted to take the stand and tell the jury how being on sort of the inside of the U.S. national security state and looking at the deception, looking at the lies, reading the Pentagon Papers, this secret history of the Vietnam War that showed the government was lying, how that led him to give it to the media. And his lawyer asked him on the stand, why did you leak the Pentagon Papers? And the judge instantaneously intervened saying, you're not allowed to answer that question. And the lawyer says to the judge, I've never heard of a case in all my years of practicing law where a defendant cannot explain himself. And the judge says, well, you're hearing of one now. And that's been basically the prototype for these cases since then. Daniel Hale's attorneys tried to raise a selective prosecution defense to have the charges dismissed, a vindictive prosecution motion for dismissal, as well as a a First Amendment one. And with the selective prosecution, they argued you know, that people in official Washington leak all the time, right? The biggest leaker of U.S. government secrets is the U.S. government itself. And people leak information about the drone program. They give it to these sorts of gullible journalists who then turn around and tell the public how great our international program of extrajudicial execution and assassinations are. So Hale's crime, it isn't leaking information about the drone program. Let's all be honest. It's exposing the government as having lied about the drone program. But that was rejected. His First Amendment claims were rejected. And the government put forward a series of motions preemptively asking the judge to bar the defense from mentioning the defendant's good motives. Good motives, in quotation marks, is in their brief, because motives, good or not, don't matter. They asked the judge to bar them from challenging the classification of the documents or raising a misclassification defense, both on the grounds that classification is the sole purview of the executive branch, and therefore a judge cannot rule a document's been misclassified, and a defense attorney cannot challenge a classification, as well as the claim that the Espionage Act does not require information to be properly classified. There's a huge problem, even inspector generals within the government talk about it, of overclassification, right? You're not supposed to be able to just, in theory at least, classify any document willy-nilly, and you're certainly not supposed to be classifying documents because you want to stifle public discourse and because you want to conceal information that's embarrassing to the U.S. government. But we know that happens in practice. So the prosecution, knowing that would come up, said, can't raise that defense. And it's the most bizarre and just outlandish motion that I read, and I, I spoke to two different Espionage Act defendants, and unfortunately, neither one of them was surprised by this one. They said that the defense was barred from arguing that an alternative perpetrator committed the charge crime unless they could present non-speculative evidence of that individual's connection to the particular reporter and knowledge of access to the documents and issues. So at this point, I think everyone listening is thinking, what kind of defense could Daniel Hale present? And the answer is basically none at all. So last week, he pled 
guilty to one count under the Espionage Act of unlawful retention and transmission of national defense information. Now, the government, and I've spoken to lawyers who have said that in all their years of practicing law, they've never heard of this. The government has not dismissed the remaining four charges and has merely asked the trial to be postponed until he's sentenced on this charge, meaning that if the government thinks the judge gives too lenient a sentence, they're basically reserving the right to go and have a trial on the remaining charges. Now, whether or not they'd get away with that, it's not clear to me. The defense pushed back on that during the change of plea hearing, and a couple of legal experts I've spoken to think they might not be able to get away with that. But it's just an unprecedented move here just across the board. And this brings us to the question, what did Daniel Hale give to the world? I mean, we hear espionage act, that sounds like a spy or a saboteur furnishing military secrets to a hostile enemy, troop movements to al-Qaeda or Putin, right? But no, he gave information to The Intercept about the U.S. drone program that gave us an unprecedented look into the quote-unquote kill chain, right, the bureaucratic process by which people are basically chosen for summary execution by the president, showing they were culling data from the terror watch list. And I would remind people that U.S. citizens have information about themselves and the terror watch list. They are making these targeting packages called baseball cards, where they would reduce all the information about a potential target to a baseball card. And then the president would get this and could decide whether or not we should murder this person or not. And if he says yes, the military has 60 days to do this. These practices are oftentimes called targeted killings. I would remind people or maybe inform them for the first time the Israeli government had a program of targeted killings, and the Bush administration criticized and rebuked the Israeli government, claiming that program violated international law. When the Obama administration was looking for legal justifications for its own targeted killings, it cited Israeli court rulings and Israeli actions. So we went from the U.S. government as officially opposed to Israeli targeted killings as a violation of international law. These are extrajudicial executions. These are assassinations to, look, the Israelis have shown us that it's legal to do this, which is just mind-boggling to me. And they call them targeted killings, but guess what? 90% of the people per the drone papers who were killed in U.S. airstrikes in one five-month period were not the intended target. And when the U.S. government kills unintended targets, it labels them by default enemies killed in action unless the information emerges after their murder, after their death, showing that they were not a quote-unquote enemy combatant or a terrorist. And these papers showed how these decisions were being made in part using sort of very faulty technology and signals intelligence and metadata and the anonymous source who I guess we all know now is Hale. You have to have a lot of faith in technology to do this. And I personally have seen faulty intelligence. And it goes back to what You know, Hale was talking about in the movie National Bird how he had no way of knowing if people engaged in the targeting of the quote-unquote killer capture program were civilians or not because it was just impossible to know. And Hale 
said, once again anonymously, back in the drone papers, this outrageous explosion of watch listing, of monitoring people and racking and stacking them on lists, assigning them, them numbers, assigning them baseball cards, assigning them death sentences without notice on a worldwide battlefield, it was from the very first instance wrong. Yeah. So this is purely, purely assisting a journalist in news gathering and giving to the American people information about what its government is doing. And I know the enemies of whistleblowers always prattle on about like, oh, they should have gone to official channels, official channels, official channels. Now, those official channels are not quite that good. But in a case like a global assassination program that's U.S. policy, I mean, the check for that is called our democratic process. It's us as a nation deciding whether or not we think this is what we should be doing. But from the Pentagon Papers to the drone papers, the U.S. government has sought to conceal the realities of its war making and take from us our ability to make democratic choices about what our government is doing. And, you know, the first use of the Espionage Act during World War One was putting opponents of World War I in jail for comments that would now be considered protected speech. Infamously, you know, Eugene Debs was charged under this. And the comment that got him in trouble, the illegal comment, was something along the lines of wars have always been fought by the servant class and started by the master class. If war be right, let the people decide. And since the creation of the Espionage Act, that is what the U.S. government has been working against, this idea that if war be right, let the U.S. people decide for themselves about the war. First by during World War One, putting opponents of this war in jail, and then since the Pentagon Papers and the Drone Papers and the WikiLeaks revelations, concealing information from the U.S. public about what their government is doing in their names, and then putting in jail anybody who tells the people what's going on so they could possibly decide for themselves if war be right. I came across in looking into this and coverage of drone warfare generally a piece called The Moral Case for Drones from the New York Times in 2012 that was about what it called drones' seductive promise of precision killing and perfect safety for operators. In other words, how specifically the superior ability to avoid civilian casualties made drones better than any other method of warfare, better at identifying the terrorist and avoiding collateral damage, as one source had it. So Hale's revelations about, for example, how any military-age male in the vicinity of a target was deemed legitimate his revelations drive a stake right through that moral posturing about how it's okay because they are kill fewer civilians than any other method of warfare. And Kevin Gastola, one of the few reporters who's actually talked about this, adds that another of Hale's revelations was that nearly half of the people on the U.S. government's widely shared database of terrorist suspects are not connected to any known terrorist group. So these are the kinds of things that, as you've explained, would bring on this intense unto absurd shroud of silence that is being charged under the Espionage Act. This is the content that the government is so interested for us not to know. And I, and I would add that 
one of the few pieces, and I'm going to ask you about media in a second, one of the few pieces that I saw from the AP cited Jamil Jaffer, who's now at Columbia, who for years at the ACLU was filing FOIAs on the drone program. And he said he just wasn't able to get that much information going through these official channels, you know. So in other words, Hale's disclosures were emphatically important and were revelations that could not be obtained otherwise. So I want to ask you about what you make of the virtual silence of media on the story. But I wanted to ask you quickly, and I think I know what you'll say. It sounds as though you think the Espionage Act should just be off the books. Yeah, I mean, if not off the books, it should be very much amended. The organization I worked with, Spending Rights and Dissent, has worked with Whisper, the Whistleblower and Source Protection Project at Exposed Facts. I believe I'm, I can never get that acronym right. Apologies to Whisper. I think um, so. Who represented Hale, Drake, Snowden. I mean, we did congressional advocacy about what we thought were the deficiencies of the Espionage Act, and we put forward some, I think, fairly modest reform. What constitutes a modest reform of the Espionage Act on Capitol Hill is quite a different story, right? I mean, I just suggested, you know, consider this crazy idea, Janine, that in order to get a conviction for espionage, the U.S. government has to prove the specific intent to aid a foreign power or injure the national security of the United States, i.e. the definition of actual espionage, Mm -hmm. you know, quote-unquote true espionage. That didn't meet with many takers. Tulsi Gabbard did introduce a bill that was supported by Defending Rights and Dissent and supported by Daniel Ellsberg that would have made that a requirement. And Ro Kohana and Ron Wyden did another bill that would not have helped Daniel Hale, but would make it so you could not prosecute journalists under the Espionage Act. Because right now, you know, a lot of us have been saying for years, you heard me say this, you know, this war on journalist sources is eventually a war on journalists. And then with the indictment of Julian Assange, this is clearly a war on journalists. And, you know, the official parties usually say, no, 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 that's not true. There's this ex-NSA lawyer, I believe his name is George Croner or George Kroner, who's been running around the Internet with journal articles and tweets being like, the Assange case is criticized because it opens the door to prosecute journalists. I think this is great, and this is why the Assange case is great, and has commented publicly on the Daniel Hale case that it's great they got a conviction against Daniel Hale by browbeating him into a plea, by robbing him of his constitutional right through defense. But it's really a shame they didn't prosecute the journalist, too, and that the Assange indictment, this ex-NSA lawyer said, right, gives us the precedent to go after the journalist, too. In this case, is not being named in the court documents, but we all know is is Jeremy Skyhill, a, a fantastic journalist, wow. you know, who's done good wow. reporting on the U.S. national security state, going back to like being one of the few people in the late night to cover the impacts of the U.S. sanctions on Iraq, yep. where we were causing mass death amongst children and covering those airstrikes, and then being critical of the Iraq war, and, and then exposing Blackwater and now drone strikes. I mean, mean, this is an ex-NSA lawyer who wants him in jail. And it's only going to get worse because there hasn't been that much of a pushback. And that's just where I wanted to bring us, finally, the virtual silence of major media. We've seen it, not just silence that then is 
complicity with folks like this ex-NSA lawyer who, you know, I mean, it's it's so self-defeating on the part of journalists. And I know media are not monolithic, and there has been coverage certainly in independent media. Uh, and of course, journalism is at the center of the story in terms of The Intercept carrying uh, Hale's revelations. I always am going to have a problem with mainstream journalists who will not go to bat for the rights of whistleblowers, but will dust off their shelf for the awards that they expect to win based on those revelations. I just don't understand it. Let me ask you finally what you make of, you know, the media's role here. It's so central to the First Amendment. It's so central to the democratic process. And yet, there's no spotlight. With Assange, I thought there was really terrible media coverage with Assange. With every, pretty much every major newspaper editorial board, when push came to shove, came out and opposed the extradition request and indictment against Julian Assange, saying that was a threat to the press. Many newspapers, New York Times, I think Boston Globe, editorialized on behalf of Snowden getting a pardon of clemency. The Washington Post, which got a Pulitzer Prize, for Snowden's revelations, did not. They thought Snowden belonged in jail for being their source, perhaps a first in the world of newspaper editorial boards. I don't know about that one. But with Hale, besides some Washington Post coverage, besides Kevin Gastala, who is a hero for his coverage of these issues, and besides a piece I'm working on for Jacobin right now, which hopefully will be out by the time people are listening to this, there's just been a real silence. And I think part of it is the complicity in the drone program that the media has propagandized for drones. I think part of it is the Trump era and that while this doesn't necessarily go with some of the narratives people want to tell in the media about Trump, on the one hand, they were so concerned with whistleblowers and free press when Trump was attacking the mainstream media. But they also would paint Trump as being insufficiently bellicose or militaristic, which inside the Beltway is the worst crime you can commit, and which was far from true. He escalated drone strikes. He escalated air wars. And there was silence on that. And then I also don't think it helps that so much other news has happened with the impeachment and then with COVID at the time this story was released. I understand that Daniel Hale has... His sentencing is coming up in July, so there is an opportunity to get more attention to the case in the meantime, and hopefully we will see that. Yeah, and rightsanddissent.org is hosting an action calling for leniency for Daniel Hale. If you visit our website, you can take it. Obviously, I don't think Daniel Hale should have to require leniency. He should not have been indicted or convicted, but we're in the situation we are in now And I think seeing an outpouring of support from people who say what Hale did was in the public interest, was the interests of our democracy, please, please, please show leniency and take that into account. He's a whistleblower, not a spy. I think we need that outpouring of of voices. We've been speaking with Chip Gibbons, Policy Director at Defending Rights and Dissent. They're online at rightsanddissent.org. Chip Gibbons, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me back. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the media watch group FAIR, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.